this last weekend, a friend of mine came over to my house, uh, and and she fuck. Okay, I'm back. I answered the phone. I had a short phone conversation. Uh, oddly enough, it was my friend, the woman I was talking about. Her name is Erica. Uh, she was the one that called me on the phone, and I was totally annoyed. I wanted to get the. I was. This has been an emotional thing editing this uh, this this interview with Bud. Uh, so I was tense. So uh, you heard my. You heard it in my voice when I when the phone rang. Now. She called me to tell me that the moon had just risen, and I am standing here looking out my window, and there is a full moon that has just risen over the Tetons. Uh, we had a beautiful, clear, calm day. It's spectacular. So I'm grateful she called. That was a nice thing for her to say. You know, like, ooh, look out the window. There's a full moon. It's rising over the Tetons. So, so you know, back to this last weekend when, when she came over to my house. Now, she, probably more than any person on earth, knows how I've been acting lately, um, how emotionally challenging this has been uh, dealing with this, this stuff, this stuff, this UFO abduction stuff. Now, um, we talked about something that I actually almost never talk about. I, I was involved in a documentary project in 2007 and 2008 uh, where... Um, I, this is actually a long story. I won't go into it here. I did a separate podcast where I just talk into the microphone and, and uh, talk about the genesis of the project, uh, how it came to be, and then how it eventually fizzled. Th- that's a post called Thoughts on a Documentary on Hold. And, um, and and I'll link that into the show notes now. Uh, so so basically, uh, the, the 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 concept of this documentary was that uh, someone uh, who has never looked into their experiences would then go on what would be the journey of looking into their experiences. Uh, you know, talking to UFO uh, researchers like Bud Hopkins, and then also talking to people who have had the first-hand abduction experience. So that is, you know, we have a lot of footage uh, of, of exactly that. So uh, the footage was all transferred to uh, DVDs, and uh, there's about uh, you know, well over 40 hours of footage of me doing interviews with people like you know, Bud and Leo Sprinkle and David Jacobs and, uh, and then a handful of uh, abductees. So, so so here at my house, I have a stack of DVDs, and I just said, "Hey, you're interested? Let's uh, let's pop one in and look at it. It's just completely raw footage, unedited." So so I put it in the um, my my DVD player, and we sat on the couch and watched it. And um, it was interesting. The one that I that I picked because it was Bud talking about the emotional challenges that that the that the abductees have to deal with, and. Um, he talked about low self-esteem, and then he also talked about how um, the abductees don't feel connected or at peace with their own bodies, which uh, which really hit home for me. And then it was very interesting to see Erica kind of look at me with this kind of knowing expression, and and, and she recognized that that I, you know, fit the description that Bud was giving me. Now, Bud also asked a handful of questions. Uh, at the time, 
God, you can hear it in my voice. I was so nervous and so wishy-washy. I, I didn't answer his questions directly, but, but, I'm, but I'm answering them now. And so when you listen to this, uh, I will uh, interject. I'll, during, I edited in my own replies to his questions, or a few of them anyway, and tried to give an honest answer when at the time I was too nervous and too kind of uptight to, to give a, 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 a real honest answer. So, so this excerpt is about uh, 45 minutes long. It's probably close to four hours of me and Bud together talking. But this one section, which is kind of synchronistically interesting, that that would be the one I would pull out and drop into the DVD player when Erica was here. Uh, this one, this one plays out very much like um, like like me and a therapist. You know, Bud is asking me very you know, sort of pressing and personal questions about how I'm doing emotionally. And I, I just have to assume that he would ask any person who was wondering about probable or possible abduction experiences in their lives, he would ask the same questions. So this is a, a, a sort of intimate peek into how Bud went about doing his work. And and he is a is a very thoughtful sensitive guy and and it was very bittersweet listening to him talk to me and and how how sad it is that he's gone uh in the video you can see that he's he's not he's not in good health uh, you can't really hear it in the audio and and as i went through the editing process um, what you're listening to here, or about to listen to here, this was pretty emotional for me to, to follow up on now, seven years later. And, and I don't know if this will be at all valuable to anyone uh, except the people who are either directly involved, people who are having their own contact experiences, or people who take the subject very, very seriously. It might come off as just kind of boring uh, to listen to this unedited discussion between Bud and I. Uh, for my part, it was, man, this was, this was an important thing for me to do, to create this podcast. You know, it's pretty emotionally charged for me. Uh, it lasts about an hour, and I and I hope that folks will get something beneficial out of this. Here we go. I'm I'm curious about something. I was asking about your your um, life in general, and you've obviously been very active and with skiing and camping and survival. All, oh, all these things. Climbing, yeah. Sur survival is a funny climbing. word. I, I sort of stay away from survival. Yeah, well, so. climbing and yeah. so forth. Um, and uh, how would you characterize your um, feelings about, uh, let's say, a stable uh, relationship with somebody or children and that kind of thing? I mean, how do you, how do you feel? Because you obviously have not gotten involved in a, a sort of long-term relationship. I've had some, the longest relationship I've had, and this is, this is very funny, I feel like I'm at the therapist's office here, so. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it all... <laughs> so, uh, there's been a pattern where if I, I date a woman for about two and a half years and it seems to change. And I, and I base my 
oh, my inability, well, just like no long-term commitments, I base that more on just my history of depression. So that's a, so you don't want to wish that on somebody, is that? Oh, I, you know, I would, I, I, there was a chapter, I feel like I'm really, I feel like right now, today, where I'm at, I feel like I'm very healthy, mm -hmm. uh, and just nothing has come up. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh. Do you think about children? No, I don't think I should have children. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, how do you feel when you see children and other people? Oh, I like, children? I like kids. I, oh, yeah. I adore kids. I adore kids. Uh, yeah, I have fun with yeah. kids. I play with them. And is there any kind of regret that you decided you can't can't do that yourself at some point? None at all. Mm -hmm. None at all. I think I'm a better Uncle Mike than I would be. A, <laughs> Uncle uh, Mike. Right. Um, well, just to be specific about looking into something. Um, you know, I always say to people that that simple curiosity really isn't enough, you know, to warrant uh, looking into something. Um, because what often happens is is if you look into something, you might find other things along the way that have been sort of blocked. Very often, people begin to think about their experiences. It's almost inevitable that I'd be working with somebody for a matter of, let's say, a year and whatever. And I got a phone call saying, you know, gee, it's the funniest thing. I, I forgot all about this, but when I was 15, it was blah, blah, blah. I just never told you about it. I forgot. And out comes some really kind of wild thing. But what happens is one thing tr triggers another. And uh, you have to weigh uh, the risks, of course, of looking into something against the uh, fact that you, you're a happy guy with a happy life and you're very good at what you do and you enjoy Yeah, I don't want to screw that up. Yeah. You don't want to screw that up. Exactly. Well, I don't want to screw that up for somebody. My basic <clears throat> rule of thumb has always been that if I feel that there's something um, that's, let's say, holding that person back from a fuller life, um, and it's of course a common thing that occurs with people who have these experiences uh, that there's a problem somewhere you know of, of, of having a, a fuller easier life um, I feel much more interested in looking into it because once the person can go through this and and sort of come to terms with it and think okay that's what happened um, and when you find out what did happen you also are relieved of what didn't happen. You, you can feel like certain areas of dread or worry, you know, which everybody has uh -huh. all the time anyway. Anytime you go to the doctor's office, you'd have it. But all those areas of, of uh, worry uh, can somehow be relieved because you can think, okay, I know what happened and this is it and I survived, here I am, you know, I'm okay. Uh, but the process of going through it can sometimes be um, upsetting, naturally. So it's always very hard for me to uh, urge somebody to do something or to try to suggest that they not, because it's really, now you're obviously a very intelligent guy and, and uh, you know, very stable, with a very stable life. And I can say that it's remotely possible, remotely. 
that some of the depression and some of the, let's say, difficulties in, in connecting in a long-term way with somebody, um, and even, uh, you know, hesitancies about one day having a family and so on, maybe yes to any of this or maybe no, but those things can be actually affected by having had abduction experiences. Uh, in other words, people can be depressed if they've had these experiences. There's no doubt about it. Post-traumatic stress disorder has depression as one of the major things. And do you have any trouble sleeping or do you sleep no, okay? I sleep great. Sleep, sleep great. And it can be a light on or light off or anything like that. You don't so have, I can sleep in the room. Yeah, I can take naps. What? I can sleep long. I can get up early. Yeah, I have great sleep. Just uh, having those owls flying around out there. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it would seem like your day-to-day -day life is, is good. So um, it, it is possible that it could be better, though, you know, if you kind of get clear with what's happened. Now, when we did um, a, uh, a series of psychological tests administered by a psychologist who did not know that the people involved had had abduction experiences. We just asked her, you know, uh, is there any um, psychopathology here? Uh, and are there any patterns that emerge from giving this standard battery, which is the Rorschach and the TAT and the dramatic, uh, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the drawing the house and the, and the people and the Wexler and so forth. So she did the tests and she said that <clears throat> everybody was healthy psychologically. There was no, you know, heavy duty mental illness anywhere. Um, but she said there was an interesting pattern. And she said the first was that there was uh, a sort of pattern of low self-esteem, no matter how accomplished these people were. That, um, and one of the people in our test was a, uh, in our sample, was a, a very attractive woman who was a self-made millionaire in the financial world with a nice husband and kid. And yet her self-esteem was completely incommensurate with it was me measured with what one would expect. And she said the second thing was that um, a lot of these people had a certain slight disconnect between themselves uh, physically as if they didn't quite own their bodies. That wouldn't seem to be at all something in your case. But um, she said it's as if they didn't quite feel that they trusted or owned their bodies. And, uh, and that went into sexuality and other things. There, there was a, um, she, she put it this way, that if you imagine two boys who were young uh, kids and they're, they're both big athletes and at the age of 12 or something, and one of them has a, breaks his leg, compound fracture, horrible thing, he will never in life look on his body with the same sense of trust and connection as the other one will. Um, and we tend to not get too many people who are very athletically inclined who have had these experiences, which of course is that you are athletically inclined. But the third thing was uh, a lot of hesitancy to trust and to commit to, to other people, uh, that relationships are a big problem. And when we told her 
finally what these people had gone through. She said that uh, at least the, uh, uh, there was nothing that would suggest in the psychological test that these people had made it up or hallucinated or were sick. She said the answer is a firm no to that. And she said the other thing is, though it doesn't prove anything, if they had had these uh, experiences, she said these are precisely uh, three of the major uh, situations which would result. You know, because she said it fits people who have been sexually abused or been some, through some terrible traumatic event or raped or whatever. Yeah. So the point is that uh, knowing all that, it, it means I think when people, instead of carrying these things around, and I've had, you know, uh, people say to me, it's, I feel like I'm carrying around some secret and I don't know what the secret is. You know, there's something about me that I don't understand, and it's 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 upsetting. You know, there's a sense of of um, not feeling they're completely in charge of themselves and their lives and their everything. So, uh, I think once you look into this and you find that okay, this is what happened to me, uh, all those situations tend to ease up. I think, and you know, a certain kind of healing can take place and. This is one reason why I think it's good to do, you know. But the point is, as I say, that the, the uh, other issue is whether or not yeah, so you're going to go what, through the difficulty. What, yeah, opening up a can of worms that might be a big, messy it, it, can of worms. It's always going to be a can of worms. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it because, uh, you know, if somebody says, you know, just off the top of the head, you know, you remember I was five years old and I suddenly couldn't move. And this thing came into the room. <laughs> You're going to say, "Well, you weren't, they weren't at all afraid." It's ridiculous. You were afraid. You were, and you didn't know how to how to place this experience. Where did? Who are these people? Where, what's happening to me? Where's mommy? Where's daddy? You know, all these things um, that are, um, you know, extremely unsettling and traumatic to a kid. And so it's inevitable that if, if you have had experiences, there's some trauma connected with them. I don't use any doubt about that. So that's what you have to consider. And it's something that I would suggest you mull over and we can talk about, you know, what you'd like to do, we can talk about tomorrow. Well, I think that, that, that from the next, we're going to go the way, I actually, it's very funny. I have a list of questions here. We don't think I asked one of them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But uh, we sat with a list of questions and... and uh, um, well, do you have any questions for me about what I just said? Well, that's actually something that you were pretty articulate on the phone, my phone calls with. And that's the same thing that was... Uh... Uh, this is Mike. I am uh, uh, going to comment on what, uh, what had just gone on there with the conversation between Bud and myself. Right there at the very end, uh, just before I interrupted here... Uh, Bud said to me, he asked, do you have any questions for me about what I just said? Um, and I, I've already listened to, you know, my reply to that question that he asked of me. And I have to say, I'm so nervous and so all over the map uh, that I, I, I don't really answer his questions. And well, it doesn't surprise me that I was nervous because I, I mean, I was nervous. I was very nervous. You can hear it in my voice. It's very Oh, awkward for me to listen to my own voice uh, sounding so insecure. Uh, I can really hear it clearly. 
uh, maybe more than anyone, I can hear it. And, and and now, six years later, I'm responding to to these questions of buds because I didn't respond to them in the moment. I I just kind of babbled on about some stuff that was related, but it wasn't the direct answer to what he was asking. Um, I kept some notes. I'm going to refer back to them. Now, Bud said something early on in this excerpt from the from the interview. He said, speaking to me, um, is something holding you back from a fuller life? And uh, I'm going to answer the question now. I mean, something is holding me back from a fuller life. It's clear to me and to my friends that I'm not uh, functioning at, at as high a level as I probably should be. And yeah, so the answer to that question, in front of these notes here right in front of me, the question, you know, is something holding you back from floor life? And I would say, yes, something is holding me back. And, and then the uh, he, later on, in the, he, uh, he said, um, you know, some of the depression, which I've been very open about with Bud, with everyone on this podcast series in my written work and such, um, I've been open that, that I've had a history of depression. And, and he said, you know, sometimes um, the depression uh, it can be an effect or can be affected by the abduction experiences. He said that um, PTSD, one of the major symptoms of PTSD is depression. So listening to this, I'm forced to examine myself and say, you know what, I, I don't know the source of my depression. I've always said it was hereditary. Um, and that is true. My mother and my grandmother on my mother's side uh, both had what would be severe bouts of depression in their lives, as have I. Now, you know, I'm very cautious to say, is that experience the source of my depression? I don't have an answer to that, but I am, whatever, I'm contemplating that, I'm thinking about that, I'm I'm, I'm not uh, shying away from that question. I would have at one point, and I certainly was sitting there across from Bud Hopkins, I was shying away from that question. I did not want to answer it. I did not want to think about it. Uh, also, he he mentioned low self-esteem and um, also not fully trusting my body or like an abductee might not fully trust their body. That was very interesting. Now, I was sitting watching this DVD, which was just a segment, a 45-minute segment of the uh, overall interview, and I was sitting with a friend. She knows me very well. I've confided a lot of stuff with her. I have not hidden anything from her. And um, she really picked up on Bud's comment about the low self-esteem. Um, she's not here to speak for herself, but I feel, just having the discussions we've had, uh, that um, she would say that my self-esteem isn't accurate to my to you know what I've accomplished in my life and the person I am. It seems like my self-esteem is lower than it should be. I'll just leave it at that. And it was it was very clear that she picked up on that and that Bud was, you know, I, I, I have to assume he's coming from a very real place of caring as, as well as a place where he has a lot of experience looking into these cases and, and uh, seeing how other people have been or have reacted to, to either the... Um, the phenomena, the abduction phenomena, or the the therapy 
or let's say the, the research that he's doing. He's not a therapist. I don't want to call him, a, you know, call him that, but the research that he's doing. Now, my, my answer to Bud is, is, uh, is kind of all over the map, and I don't really come to the point. And I'm, I was actually, I'm really uncomfortable listening to it, so I, I'm going to snippet most of it out just because it makes my, it really bothers me to listen to it. Um, I sound so nervous at that moment, and I'm, and I'm at a point now where I'm very comfortable listening to my recorded voice. So it's interesting that I have such a strong reaction to, to this particular excerpt. So I'll snip some of it out. I'll give you enough to, uh, so that it'll make sense when, when the conversation starts up again with Bud and I. Now, I, I talk about a guy who I spoke with on the phone who had worked with um, John Mack. Now, the question Bud was asking, in a way, was, am I ready to go forward with looking into my experiences uh, to really start digging deep and try to understand what may be the source of... Uh, of these kind of clues that have been littering my life's path. Um, I, I talk about this guy. I, I, I'm a little unclear, which is typical of me sometimes. The fellow was, I called him less about looking into my experiences and more about coming forward in a documentary. Now, this fellow had appeared in a documentary, and that was my question. Like, what, 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 what was the the reaction? What what should I expect if I come forward and talk about this in a, in a documentary? And, and this guy was great. So, uh, but that but that's that's what I was talking about is coming forward uh, as a participant, speaking about my own experiences in a documentary, as opposed to uh, lo- looking into my own experiences. Um, so here goes. Uh, I've talked to a fellow who worked with John Mack. Mm-hmm. And he had been, he appeared on a documentary, and he was very sort of like, you know, hey, just be careful where you're heading, you know, be careful where you're going. He said, you know, this is, you can expect that some people will dismiss you and treat you differently and that other people won't. Um, And he said, you know, the people who don't treat you differently are your friends and just let the other people fall away. And so, uh, I'm in a super strange thing. I mean, I've got this film crew and these cameras pointed at me and 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 i'm sort of asked to talk about you know and i purposely didn't tell them about the little thing in my nose just because it's sort of embarrassing and i and i don't trust that it that well see i i i don't see you in any sense as straining to come up with with uh, reasons to think you had an experience i mean i don't see that you're kind of trying to dig up anything you can i mean i think you're you're being you're guarded, skeptical, and so forth, which is fine. I, I mean, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's a big problem. You know, I really don't. Um, that you're somehow just making stuff up or whatever, embellishing things, I don't see that. And I think that what you're describing are, are experiences that, you know, we've certainly run into hundreds and hundreds of times. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I I agree that it's that it's it's. Uh, I mean, in the the mere fact that I am sitting here, mm-hmm. uh, I've tried to go through hypnotic regression with, uh, uh, and nothing ever happened. They couldn't put me. They couldn't, and it was only once. Well, and, see, with with hypnosis, uh, you have to really want to do it and and trust the person you're you're working with, and I think. If you're, if there's some hidden 
nervousness. Well, I mean, the whole subject about, is like a, yeah, is like know, the definition I mean, if, of nervousness. It's really yeah. like, oh my God, what's, what's going to come out? And especially if you're thinking of a film crew, um, you can feel... Uh, oh, the, the act of relaxing it, might it, be very it difficult. It can be a problem to, to allowing yourself to relax. It's just relaxation. Yeah. It's, you know, here's the thing. It, it's, I would say that hypnosis is like a kind of mental back rub. And um, if, say, uh, somebody comes over to you and says uh, he's a masseur and he would like to uh, give you a back rub and you don't like him or something and he's, he's doing all these things, you're like this. You know, you're not going to relax, yeah. no matter what he does. And in hypnosis, no matter what I would do or somebody else, if you're not ready to really say, okay, I just want to go with the flow here and relax, it's a very pleasant experience anyway, the actual relaxation. Um, and, uh, but I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something you're going to have to kind of mull over and think about because it's, it's certainly, uh, if you had, had that problem once, it, you know, it could happen again. Problem being just... I'm just not being ready to yeah. relax. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Uh, that voice you hear, um, wanting to ask a question of Bud, that is the voice of the producer. His name is Stephen. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, just based on kind of what you said before, which is like, do you have any questions for me? I mean, um, just based on what he sort of told you about these three events, I mean, how similar or dissimilar, how would you sort of sum up what you heard? And, and I don't know whether diagnosis is the right word, but that's kind yeah. of what the pops to me is to say... What do you make of it? Well, you know, if, if I were ever asked with somebody flat out, am I an abductee or something like that, uh, I always have a standard answer. I can't say for sure because I wasn't there and I can't be inside your head. But I can say that everything you're telling me is consistent with what abductees report. Well, how about uh, just the, like, having a bookshelf full of books on UFOs. Well, you've already told me some things like the the coffee can thing that's not in those books. You know, and I don't know whether you've read much about an orange flash of light either. That's not typically in the books. And I haven't seen that you've tried to change the stories around to, to fit. The one story that uh, does fit much more was seeing the seeing, quote, the figures outside the main cabin. Uh, but that's the one that you're most in doubt about, which would suggest that you're, you're being more hypercritical about, about something that does fit the books that you've read rather than uh, other experiences that don't fit the books. Fits the books environment. Quite literally, there was one of your books probably on the nightstand right. as I had that experience. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because one of the things that happens with often with people who have these experiences is that they get totally obsessed with the subject and don't know why. And they read everything they can get their hands on. Uh, for good or for bad. I mean, some of them are actually kind of flighty books and some of them are, are I just feel like I've been led astray. Yeah. Some of them are so new oh, agey. You're going to read a lot of crap, unfortunately. Yeah. But the point is that um, people um, who are obsessed, uh, you know, as you seem to have been with your hundreds of books, 
um, often if that can be a, an additional symptom of having of knowing more about this than you think. I think it's very interesting your reaction to the uh, the communion cover and the uh, puppet thing on the Star Trek. Feeling there's something wrong with it that's not not the oh, way it should be. Yeah. Um. Now see, there's a case where you're being presented with an image that the book is telling you this is the way it is, and you're saying, "No, it's different than that." Yeah. Um, so, so that. And I remember that even at the time, which would have been 1986 or 87, yeah. when that book came out. 87. But you see, that's a sign that you're not uh, that you, that your hold on your memories and your attitude towards this is not being affected by the book. And that would be the, 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 the debunker would be saying um, you're being influenced by pop culture, you're being influenced by science fiction movies, you're being influenced by television shows. And yeah, but, you, but you're saying here, no, that's, that's not right. How do I know that's not right? Um, in other words, the very fact that you have that resistance to the Strieber cover uh, Bud just made a comment about me having a resistance to the Strieber cover. That would be the cover of the book Communion, that iconic image of the big-eyed gray alien. I, I don't know if I've talked much about this in these podcasts or in my written stuff, but when I initially saw that book, when it hit the shelves in 1987, I was living in New York City, my gut reaction was to say, oh, that's not quite right. And and I I feel like I could have almost played forensic artist like a, like a, something that a cop would do at a police station, and I could have drawn what would what I would have sensed to be a more accurate illustration. The, the cover of Communion has a um, an image where it feels like the forehead isn't big enough, and the mouth and nose seem a little too human-like. Uh, it's a little angular compared to a, more of a light bulb shape, you know. I, I, and, and now that would be—that's my gut talking, you know. What I would have said, um, you know, in the after looking at the book in 1987. And, and then Bud uh, will also comment about the uh, Star Trek image. There was a Star Trek episode with, uh, curiously enough, Ron Howard's little brother, Clint Howard, uh, as a little boy at the time, uh, th where there was a, uh, a scary-looking alien that they see on the, uh, the view screen there in the, in the bridge of the Enterprise. And uh, it turns out later to be a puppet. And in the episode, it was, it was meant to scare the, the, the crew of the Enterprise. Uh, I remember I had a very strong uh, reaction to that. It really freaked me out. Uh, that, that puppet, or that face, that it was sort of like an alien gray, though not quite, big giant bald head and skinny neck and great big eyes. I actually did a blog post on the, that memory and I included an image of that, uh, of that from the uh, closing credits of Star Trek. Anyway, I had a strong reaction to that and I just, I shared that with Bud and, um, that, you know, and that, that's, that, that's what he brought up in the part of the discussion. So back to uh, the, the recorded interview from 2007. The very fact that you have that resistance to the Strieber cover and to the uh, uh, the image on on Star Trek is a sign that you're that you don't really 
feel like a sponge. You're not a sponge at accepting everything that's handed you, like book covers by people like Whitley Strieber. Mm -hmm. You're not picking that up. You're actually resisting and saying, no, it's different than that. So in other words, you're keeping your own personal experiences and views pure, away from what you're reading. And, and this format with the lights and the cameras and the microphones, uh, I feel like I've made a huge effort to not stray from the stories that I'm telling. I feel like, and at the same time, these stories, I've sat in front of these cameras and told some of these stories more than once, the, mm -hmm, the story. Sure, of course. And, and I've, I'm, I'm worried that they're, that they're, that I'm remembering the story that I'm telling on the camera rather than remembering the story that I told in real life. Well, look, that's, you, you can worry these issues yeah. forever. The thing to be concerned is about is if you decide you want to do it or not. Uh, that's a big worry, you know, if you want to do hypnosis and look into it. Uh, and that's what you have to consider. And, of course, the worry about whether or not you can relax enough is a major worry. You know, forget about the cameras and what you've said about keeping the stories clear. I, I think that what you're telling me uh, would suggest that you're that there's something in you that's very very honest about what's a real memory what isn't and the the, the main reason you're really looking down on the uh, the main incident really is that it's too close to things in the books so you're really kind of putting him yeah. putting it away i mean look at your reaction i better lie what is it i time to go to sleep or something like that when you saw that yeah oh yeah it felt like it felt like like i was it felt like the instruction was shut down lay down yeah. shut down and we're, yeah uh yeah no it's 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 uh no, see i i think you're that's an extremely interesting experience and i think that that's the one that you're ten as i said trying to put down because well, here, here's something about that memory. This is going to be... So the light that I remember seeing yeah. in the yard, um, there was a movie made of Whitley Strieber's Communion, which I had seen before the event. Mm -hmm. And I remember the next morning thinking, there's a scene in that movie, um, which I don't think was a very good movie, no. um, and uh, Christopher Walken's portraying Whitley Strieber, and there's a scene at the end where he kind of walks into this light. And I was working at a film crew in New York City, and I remember looking at that light and going, that's just a big set. That's, I mean, that's just a big light, yeah. and they just lit it a certain way, and they yeah. just you know, opened the aperture on the camera, and that's he's just walking towards a big movie light. My memory was the light was a big movie light. And, and it was, I just remember thinking, uh, I remember actually thinking, that's a very simple special effect. Mm -hmm. In my at that night, looking at the big light. And who did the special effect? Well, I was mirroring the pop culture thing of yeah. of, of the of the of the of the movie. Do you have the drawing with you? I don't. That drawing that I did of, no, I don't think I have it. No. Well, I th I do think that the. Uh, you know, you're just going to have to weigh the, the pros and cons yeah. of, of looking into this further. Yeah, and that's exactly what this. I mean, I feel like uh, 
when I decided to do this, do you familiar with Joseph Campbell? He's a he's a mythologist. Hi, this is Mike again. Uh, I want to comment on uh, the uh, I, I mentioned Joseph Campbell. I tell a story that is actually kind of long and rambling, and I probably didn't come to the point very well. Uh, I actually have uh, a recorded essay. Uh, a, I think it's called a, a Thoughts on a Documentary on Hold. It's just me talking into the to the microphone, and I'm talking about. Um, this this documentary here it would actually be super helpful. Anyone listening to this should probably go and listen to that. But I do tell that story in full. The uh, the Joseph Campbell dream. I had a dream that um, had to do with a map. Oh, that's that's interesting that a map would play such a pivotal part of that. When uh, just in the last month I had such a powerful map experience. Uh, anyway, I, that literally just came to me as I was speaking here into this microphone right now. Uh, preparing this uh, audio audio uh, podcast thing. Now, um, I, I also talked about um, the movie light thing. Uh, if, if you go to the post where I talk about seeing the, uh, I think it's called A View From My Window, I'll also include a, a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, I write uh, about that seeing that movie light. I, once again, I was not very clear talking with Bud. I was so shaky. Um, in that written essay, I'm much more clear talking about that movie light. Okay, here, I'll, I'll cut back to the interview, uh, but I will snip out uh, the, my long, rambling description of a dream that had to do with a Joseph Campbell-type map. Okay, back to, back to the interview. Uh, and it just seemed genuinely... Exciting. I mean, there's no adventure that's going to take place unless you're, you go to that place. Right. Well, I think it's very brave of you and, and also very intelligent. I mean, it, it has a sort of clarity of thinking behind it to do it the way you're, you're doing it. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, it's... Uh, um, you know, the, the power people have to somehow sort of mis-examine their day-to-day life. I remember um, a woman coming up to me, a very attractive young woman in uh, Florida, and she said uh, she wanted to talk to me, she'd like to look into her experiences, she remembered this, that, and the other thing. But she said, all of her memories are wonderful. They were very friendly and warm and, and great and so on. And um, I said, okay, you know, I mean, but many people to say that. And uh, so as we talked, I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, are you married or involved in a relationship or something? And she said, uh, no. I, she said, I, I live alone. She said, I, I have uh, three cats and four dogs or something like that. And she said, I'm very content to, to live alone. And uh, I said, uh, what kind of work do you do? And she said, well, I'm a freelancer. I, um, she said, I, I like to be my own boss, and I, I forget what it was she did, some, something, maybe real estate or some such thing. Uh, she also said that she couldn't leave her house um, because that's where she did her work. She was afraid to, to go very far away from home, uh, a little bit different from people who go mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. But uh, she said... Um, uh, the only reason she was at this conference is because several people she knew volunteered to drive her down and said she should really try to look into what was going on. 
So she was a freelancer living at home, very isolated from people of relationships. And um, I said, I asked a question I knew she, what the answer was going to be. I said, well, when do you do most of your work? And she said, well, I'm a night person. I work at night. She said, I only sleep much better in the daytime than at night. Uh, and, and so I, I, I have my schedule, so I work at night. Uh, but everything is wonderful and so on. And I'm realizing here's a woman without really recognizing what's going on in her life. It's very different than your situation, but it's an example of how people hide things. She's living in a state of siege. She has no relationship of any sort, a very attractive young woman and all this. Um, she has her dogs and cats to <laughs> keep her company. And she's afraid to go out of her house. And she uh, works at night because she's afraid to sleep at night. And I thought, this isn't, this isn't my life, you know, really. It, it, it isn't. She's unaware of the fact that she set, set up this kind of reaction, which shouldn't be, you know. So it's just that I think, I think many times, since you and I don't know each other, really except just today but <clears throat> I think it's it's often that people somehow can um, you know sort of change the way the life feels to them and maybe the the, the problem with the depression and and some of the uh, issues with these relationships that last two and a half years or something that may, there may be something connected with why those things don't work out that might be connected with the phenomenon. Maybe I don't know. I don't. It's, yeah. it's very. It's very. You know. And I, my gut reaction is to say, and I say this all the time. It's like I, my gut reaction is to say I feel so. I feel like I'm lying. I feel like I'm wasting these people's time, uh, and that is. Well, that's that's that to me is I'm wrapped so tight thinking about that. You're certainly that's you're certainly not lying, and and you're certainly not wasting time because. Uh, you know, these are, as far as I'm concerned, I learn something from everybody I work with, each person, uh, whatever it is, I learn something. Because no two people are alike. And, uh, it, you know, it's amazing. If you take a, a terrible trauma, and I've used this example many times, if you imagine 10 women who have rape experiences, just as an example. Um, you could imagine that one of them is maybe going to have a total breakdown and be hospitalized. And on the other end, uh, one takes two or three showers and goes to bed with a lover. And in between, uh, the people with different degrees of reaction, they're not, it's not a one size yeah. fits all. There's going to be totally different reactions to these experiences. And um, I, uh, you know, there's no way of, of really understanding for me what all the many, many factors are that go on in another person's life, and especially somebody who I've just met today, mm -hmm. you know. But um, uh, I think these things are worth looking into, and I think um, that if I, if I didn't think that this could be helpful to you, I don't think I would even be suggesting it. Like, it'd be very easy to say, I don't think that, I think mm -hmm. everything's going so well now, why bother? But I suspect some things are not going mm -hmm. as well as mine. When you go off mountain climbing or camping, how do, how do you feel about that? What's the... 
Oh, I feel more alive, more yeah. resilient, more. I laugh more. I sing more. I, yeah. I, uh, and I, I teach for a school, and we do very ambitious courses. We do courses that are thirty days long. So we mm-hmm. walk off a bus. I take students who've never been camping into the glaciers of Alaska for thirty days, wow. and and uh, uh, and it's a super transformative experience for right. the students. They come sure. back, uh, mostly college age folks. They mm-hmm. come back saying it was the most important experience of my life. So, Wildly rewarding, and and uh, and I and I, my personality, elevates and changes, and mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm kind of a quiet character and live in a little town, and and uh, but uh, when I'm doing these courses, I'm just I'm I, I just uh, a level of aliveness. I'm curious what uh, <clears throat> if you can even answer this, uh, where you feel safest? Do you feel safest out there in the wild where a lot of people wouldn't feel safe or do you feel safest say in your family home as a kid or do you feel safest in new york when you were living here in a big city uh or safe, can you say safe anything? is a funny term i mean maybe it's comfortable because i feel like i'm safe all the maybe time comfortable. i feel like yeah yeah comfortable you know actually i think that that the 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 uh i i like the unencumbered feeling of when you do these courses, mm-hmm. you do it with one spoon mm-hmm. and a little tea mug, and you do mm-hmm. your eating, you drink your coffee out of the mug, you eat your dinner out of the mug, you eat your breakfast out of the mug with that same one spoon, uh, no running water, no mm-hmm. bathroom, and I think that I relish that experience. I think mm-hmm. that's really, there's a level of um, value to that, that that some people will never know. Mm-hmm. And, and I like introducing folks to that, and I, I think it's really an amazing experience. Um, so... Uh, it's hard. You have to come back. Yeah. You know, you can't. You're. You know, you yeah. have to come back at one point. So right. you can't live out there forever. And that's. I mean, I know that. Uh, and I don't um, overtly romanticize the, the experience in the backcountry. Uh, but uh, I, I delight in that, and it's a big mm-hmm. part of my personality. I think. Mm-hmm. And there was a a big shift in my. Well, big shift. Uh, you know, if I plotted my life out in a chart, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, here's where I was then. I was living in New York. I was mm-hmm. working in ad agencies, and I moved out west. I, it's very strange to me that, that I, I live in a little cabin in Idaho and teach people to sleep in igloos, um, having, started, having started in a... It is strange. Uh, I, yeah, it's just, I just yeah. need to laugh. Oh, nice yeah. juxtaposition, igloos. I remember, uh, I New Yorker years ago, about some Eskimos outside the igloo, and and they, one Eskimo is opening these ice cube trays and got ice cubes are falling around. And his wife is telling a friend he's putting in a tile bathroom. <laughs> I actually, just so you know, I have made windows. You have a couple go with a little fry pan, mm-hmm. and the igloos are dark. Mm-hmm. I mean, the insulation quality of snow and yeah. everything, they're very warm. Yeah. I mean, it could be 30 degrees below zero outside, mm-hmm. and it could be 30 degrees above zero in the igloo. So you're right mm-hmm. about freezing, which is considerably warm when it's 60 degrees difference between out the door. But I've made uh, uh, windows mm-hmm. with with a, you take a little bit of water, you put it in the fry pan, you let it mm-hmm. melt out, and then you set it in there, <laughs> and then you you show that to a bunch of college age kids. So they're and transparent. Oh, in other words. oh, they're just not transparent enough to let wind lo- yeah. the light in. You can look through, yeah. and you can see when people are approaching. You, you can't quite, you know, see if they have, uh, uh, if they've spilled hot chocolate down their front, but you can definitely yeah. see when people are approaching your, your shelter and such. Yeah. 
I know. I think, I'm so. looking, I think I'm looking at the light here, and and, uh, yeah. and just so you know, we we wrote, we sat around, we wrote these really nice questions. I don't think we got to uh, put a hard. I just, I was just to pull back to the general for one last, last. I mean, it just. Okay, that woman's voice you're hearing, uh, that is the voice of Tanya. She is the director. Um, I guess uh, you start talking about igloos uh, in a UFO documentary and the, the director uh, chimes in and tells you to get back on track. Okay, back to the interview. I'm curious as to what, if you could kind of encapsulate what you think, like, are they bad guys? Are they good guys? Are they signed? You know, yeah. like the kind of from the layman's, yeah. right. as I said, yeah. kind of what are they doing? And yeah. do you, and my other one, right. do you think we'll know in our lifetimes in a more yeah. explicit way? Well, it, just in terms of summarizing my view of the whole thing, is that uh, I've never run into cases where I thought that the, that the occupants were being malevolent. You don't find they're going to twist your arm and do some horrible thing. There, there's no sense of deliberately inflicting pain and harm. There's also no, no sign that they're here to, to help us because, uh, as an example, they've been here through World War II for sure, because I have abduction cases going back to the 1920s. And there's no record that even one you know, Jewish baby or woman or whatever was rescued or saved or something from the Holocaust. And of course we have AIDS that we didn't have before and God knows how many things. There's no sign that anything has been done that's helpful. And there's no doubt that there's been a lot of damage done, collateral damage, not intended, but psychological damage to people who they have been dealing with. So I have anger that this has gone on even though I'm not seeing it as, as a um, malevolent thing. But it's definitely not a, a, some kind of benign, helpful event either. And one of the reasons why the whole thing is so mysterious is because we have a Manichaean idea of, of the world, the good guys and the bad guys, and they don't fit either one. It's as if they're doing their thing, they're following their particular agenda for their reasons, which we don't fully understand at this point because we know what their goals are. But in the meantime, there's no sign of deliberate harm, but there's plenty of sign of damage to people who've had these experiences, psychological, emotional damage. So I find it deplorable, even though I don't know what it will ultimately lead to. Let me ask one question about the question as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously our goal in essence is to kind of follow this journey yeah. with Mike. Mm -hmm. We're beyond kind of hypnotic regression in your experience of looking at cases and writing books. Like, where would you look for, again, I don't want to use evidence and it kind of has to be physical evidence, but where would you look for, <coughs> beyond hypnotic, hypnotic yeah. regression, where would you look? Well, in terms of thinking about your case, uh, in terms of what evidence there, there is. I mean, you, first of all, you have these two childhood experiences which involve another person. And you have the mother of one of the boys who remembers your drawing uh, things. So that would be good to have those things, um, you know, written down or that would turn up in an interview. So you've got some definite kind of witness, witness stuff. Uh, I think that the 
a little cut on the nose, I would go to a, a doctor. Um, and um, I'm not sure whether it be an ENT person and say that this has always bothered you in some way, not that it hurt, but it's always bothered you as to how you got this. What does this look like happened to me? You know, just don't mention UFO thing. But get some kind of statement from the doctor that this looks like a, a deliberate uh, a scalpel-like cut or it looks like what often happens with ingrown hairs or whatever. Uh, I've frankly never heard of an ingrown hair in the nose, but uh, who knows. Uh, but it would be good to get that kind of testimony too. And uh, it would be, beyond that, it's kind of hard right now to think of what other bits of evidence you could, you could find, certainly the, the little scar. You don't have anything on a leg or anything that looked like a scoop mark or anything like that. No. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> I think that could be, could be looked at. But uh, one of the problems is that an awful lot of this does, just doesn't yield situations where you have physical evidence. Uh, Carl Sagan used to say, well, why doesn't somebody grab a cocktail napkin and run out of the UFO with it? Uh, that was his kind of witty put down. And that's grabbing a cocktail napkin by somebody who was stark naked, lying on a table, paralyzed. physically paralyzed. Yeah and sort of half switched off in their minds, and there are not any cocktail napkins or portable objects around, and there are about five or six little people watching everything that's happening. It would be amazing if somebody claimed they had a cocktail yeah. napkin. So I think it, in physical evidence in this case, it's gonna be very hard to find, but the, the nasal thing might, might uh, at least get some kind of medical opinion. That would be worth doing. Oh my gosh, this was delightful. This was. Uh, I think so. We didn't. I can. I mean, who knows? I mean, here's my my thought is that as we as we our initial thought for this whole project was that we were going to put together a probably 15 minute little short teaser, and teaser is maybe the wrong way to say it. Mm -hmm. Just edit something down, and then we would use that for two reasons. One, straight financing, yeah, and then the two would be that if we showed this. To someone, mm -hmm. they would get the they would get the vibe, the tone yeah, that we're right. going for, and 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 hopefully see that it's purposely not exploitative. So mm -hmm. that would I think hopefully open the doors to to people who, for me to talk to who are hesitant of the of the stigma or hesitant of mm -hmm. the of the um, just mean spiritedness of other documentaries. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, See, I, I don't think there's anything unusual about your sort of ambivalence here about the whole thing. Well, it's strangely non-ambivalent in the sense that, I mean, I, I have like well, these cameras here. Well, so. I mean, yeah, I know, but I mean, when you say, when you bring up things with the qualifiers, like the main experience, uh, I, I mean, that's, uh, you, you, you sort of keep that at arm's length, even though it's, it's quite fascinating. And I, I think that there's a certain ambivalence about that one experience that way. Yes. I can see how you would say that. But at the same time, my gut reaction, my deepest, truest gut mm -hmm. reaction is that I'm wasting your time. 
So uh, don't worry about that. Okay. So that, that's like that's like to me that's like that's the that's the well, little tape loop. That's practically in the, every third letter I get. People say I may be wasting your time, but uh, yeah. and one guy once wrote my favorite thing. He said, even if you don't answer this letter. Even if you don't read this letter, it's done me an enormous amount of good to have written this letter. Well, that was a little, the letter that I wrote you was a little unsettling for me because yeah, I could I could just like, like all of a sudden I was like, uh-oh, well, it's, like, it's hard to, until you see it in paper, it all lined up like that. The whole thing is so crazy. You see? Oh, I, I, it's totally crazy, you know. <laughs> I don't begrudge anyone for thinking it's crazy. I don't begrudge anyone for no, saying it's, No, absolutely yeah. not. So. That's why I responded to you for that exact reason. Because... Because you apologized in your yeah. <laughs> uh, that voice you hear in the background very quietly uh, talking about why he replied to my letter uh, that that was from Oliver Kamensky and he was working as an assistant to Bud uh, in the final years of Bud's life and, and that was the guy that I had my first interaction he called me back on the telephone after I sent that letter to Bud and the letter to Bud I, I'm quite sure uh, I probably still have it on my computer somewhere, but I'm quite sure, you know, I talked about the fact that there is this documentary project underway. Because you apologized in your yeah. letter Bye. to me for wasting my time. Thank you. Oh. I think it's just beginning that they're doing this. So I just don't think that uh, we're going to hear much about them. But, um, well, there's some just fascinating stuff. I mean, Dave has a lot of stuff that he hasn't made public, you know, on this. Of course, it's very hard to. Uh, you think? I mean, I think you've got evidence. I, don't know how long I mean, the evidence to me, as far as I can tell, just as an outsider looking at, at other people's research, the evidence is these consistencies that show up. Oh yeah. From I mean, that's to me, that's the proof in the pudding. I mean, that, that's what I've always done. And you see, I've always looked for these. For, this is some kind of fantasy or something or whatever. It should be that all the there was a very fancy, uh, you know, oh, like KG a, a future, a futuristic stethoscope. Yeah, yeah, nothing happens like that. They just don't have any interest in that. They go for what's also, you know, there aren't any uh, sort of cases of these sci-fi stories of, of ray guns and you know zappers from the distance and all that. I mean, that never turns up, even though that's in the uh, popular culture. So there's, there are a lot of things that never happen. It was done, you know, inadvertently. There was a woman and her three daughters and her son. The three daughters were, like the son was like 14, and the three daughters were between, say, 16 and 22 or something. And they were driving <clears throat> on, a, on a trip. And uh, somehow or other, the car the car stopped. It was unclear as to why on some road. And um, the woman's memory, the first one I was dealing with, said that she remembered the car starting up. But her mother was at the wheel and evidently wasn't in control yet. And the car went over an embankment and went down this, this embankment off the road, banging into things. and. Um, finally came to rest against a tree and um, <clears throat> they were taken to the hospital and uh, the mother who had been steering uh, had been semi-impaled or something on the on the steering column mm -hmm. 
and um, but she was not fatally hurt. She was recovering. But the interesting thing was the three daughters, each one, one had a broken ankle, but each one uh, found that they each one had on their, on the same spot, on the same leg, uh, a scoop mark that they didn't have before this happened. Of course, doctors were looking at them and so forth. This one woman had a broken ankle. But when the mother was in the hospital for like two days, uh, apparently a blood clot broke loose and she died. Um. Uh, during the final little bit there, you can hear the our very small crew, which was basically um, Stephen and Tanya taking the cameras down and such. You could hear them walking around talking in the background, and they obviously just turned the uh, microphones off at that point. Um, this was very interesting for me to listen to. Uh, these years later and you know going through the editing process i mean i literally had the headphones on i was listening to every uh, every word you know, nothing from bud nothing that he said was was snipped out um i did clean up a little bit of my long ramblings um some of that stuff is covered elsewhere in the blog and no no need to repeat it here uh, plus i just was making my skin crawl listening to my own voice this was uh so very interesting. Um, it took place seven years ago. I look younger in the videos. Uh, I sound more nervous than I do now. Um, at that point in my life, um, I felt like I was emotionally healthier than I am now. It, it seems that looking into this has, has really thrown me off balance. And... Um, uh, even though I even though I sounded nervous there, and I probably sound a little more calm now, uh, that that this is this has been a titanic event in my life. Looking into these experiences and trying to make sense of them, um, absolutely disrupted everything. I I I may have said as much in the uh, in the video there, and um, I'll say it again. Uh, in a way, the mission statement, as I proceed forward with all this, is to be as honest I, as I can be. There are a few things that I ch am choosing not to share, basically because they involve other people, but it, it isn't much. Um, everything else is, um, man, it is out there. I'm, I'm, you know, like, if you dig through this blog, it's all there. And if anything comes up, I'll, I'll make it, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a weird mania, almost, to make sure that this stuff all gets documented and put and put on this website. Uh, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.